Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Formal, podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and community leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education and the arts. I'm David Kern, and in this week's episode, we are bringing you an interview that I conducted recently with two authors named Jack R. Baker and Jeffrey Bilbro. They are both professors of English at Spring Arbor University, and they recently published a book of essays on Wendell Berry called Wendell Berry and Higher Education, Cultivating Virtues of Place. This is a book that I was really intrigued by, had a chance to read, um, and wanted to talk to the guys. So we brought them on to chat, and we chatted about a number of things, um, including um, how they fell in love with Wendell Berry, why he is so... Um, appealing to so many people from so many different backgrounds, uh, religious and otherwise, rural and otherwise, um, uh, the po- they kind of typically poetic and otherwise, so to speak. Um, and so we chatted about that. We chatted about um, what Wendell Berry's views on higher education are and how um, the author's views uh, vary uh, from his a little bit. And we talked a lot about um, the state of higher education and what makes a good student for college right now um, and what colleges should be focusing on and even a little bit on what the future of um, higher education in America would look like. And then we concluded with uh, um, some some readings of some Berry poems that uh, Jack and Jeffrey included in their book. So I think you're really going to like this interview. Hope you do anyway, and uh, we'll kick it right over to that. Um, thanks for listening to Forma and enjoy the interview. Well, first of all, thank you for joining me on the show. Uh, Wendell Berry is somebody who is much beloved among our community, I think, um, and someone that I could talk about for for hours. And the great thing is, you told me earlier you have hours, so we can we can we can see what happens. And I'm curious though, where your, where you got started with Wendell Berry, like where your interest in him began um, and how you kind of, well, I was going to say fell in love with his work, but I don't know if I should put it that way, but you at least became interested enough in his work to write a book about it. So um, you've probably had at least either, you're either deeply angry or have some great affection for him. And so I'm curious if from each of you, where you, where that kind of came from and where that, um, originated. And uh, Jeffrey, I'll start with you on that. Yeah. Well, thanks for having us on, David. We're happy to talk about Barry for as long as you want. <laughs> um, yeah, I grew up uh, in the Northwest in Washington State and was drawn to uh, nature writers. So I had read a lot of nature writers, Gary mm-hmm. Snyder, uh, David James Duncan, a lot of people. Um, but I had spent some time in uh, rural communities, you know, amongst people who have a great affection for the land and nature, but are not exactly environmentalists for a lot of reasons, right? Because they want to use use creation. Um, So when I went to college and my, uh, one of my, my literature profs recommended that I 
read this guy named Wendell Berry. So I hmm. picked up one of his novels, Place on Earth. And hmm. as I started reading, I thought, oh man, this guy gets it. He, he weaves in uh, the sort of love of nature that a lot of environmentalist authors have yeah. Yeah. with uh, really thoughtful ideas about how we can live with nature and, uh, you know, as part of the great household of God's creation, rather than just separating it off from us and treating it like some tourist attraction we visit. So, uh, after that, I, I insatiably read Barry and I, and I was going to write about him, uh, for my dissertation in grad school, but I had some advisors who recommended that I not do that. So, uh, or I just, after my, so who did you end up, who did you end up writing about? Well, I wrote about four different authors, Thoreau, Willa Cather, John Muir, and then finished with Barry. Okay. Okay. And that became my first book. But then so when, why did they advise you not write about him? Just, well, just, just because he's still alive and, uh, I thought it might be better to, you know, broaden my, my, uh, work and not just focus on one living author who may or may not become canonical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, when I got to, to uh, Spring Arbor, then it, was natural that my attention turned that way because I, one of my colleagues was also obsessed with Barry. Hmm. Who's that? <laughs> Who could that be? So, uh, does that, that seems like a decent segue, Jack, do you want to jump in there? I mean, unless it's somebody else that he's talking about, then you can describe <laughs> the other person. I think it's me. And, uh, I had a, I had a similar encounter experience as, as Jeff. I grew up in a, a rural community on the West side of uh, Michigan and I Blue collar family. Dad was a police officer. Mom, uh, a homemaker, and and working some part time jobs here and there. And uh, I ended up working on a farm through junior high and high school, a fruit farm, and and fell in love with the land. Uh, already a beautiful area of the state, not far from the lake out in the country. And so I think my early affections were formed to to care deeply about place and uh, and the land. And then I got to college and I couldn't wait to get to college because I wanted to leave all that behind. <laughs> and I, um, uh, that's an, a narrative that obviously crops up in Barry several times in yeah. his fiction and, yeah. and in his own life. And I got to college and I had a professor in a philosophy course who assigned Life's a Miracle. And I, so I came to Barry first in his, in his nonfiction and his his prose and I didn't like him because I felt like he was opinionated. I didn't know who he was. And at that time, <laughs> I didn't know who he was. That meant that he was likely not an authority and uh, as a very humble freshman. And so <laughs> I read that book and I thought it was excellent writing. And, and what I remember about it was that I could understand it. And that's one of Barry's great strengths is that he writes eminently uh, intelligent prose that most people can read. And then when you look at it a second time, uh, you know, you have that sort of moment where you feel like your mind is blown and, right. uh, and I read it and I, I just didn't like it and it, it bothered me, but my professor kept sort of pushing me toward his works. In fact, Matt Bonzo is that, that professor and he's, he himself has co-authored a book on, on Barry's, uh, sort of vision. Hmm. So I had a hiatus though for a bit where I didn't read a lot of Barry when I went into grad school and medieval studies and came back to it at the end of my time in grad school and, and fell in love with his, his fiction at that point. And I've sort of never, never looked back since then. Hmm. Well, so how did the two of you get connected then? Well, I mean, it's, there's five people in our department and it works because Jack is our medievalist and I'm an Americanist. 
uh, but both of us are, have been very interested in, in Barry. So I think interesting. we actually had corresponded a little bit over email uh, about Barry before I even applied for the job here. And then during the, or after the interview, during the interview, mm-hmm. before I even knew I had the job, we talked about uh, what could we collaborate on? Mm-hmm. So do you, do you feel like you, um, you like Barry for the same reasons? It's a good question. I'll answer for Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You answer for Jeff and then Jeff can answer for you. I, I think that our affections are very, are very similar. And I think that what we found, um, you know, as our friendship has grown and through the writing process, I think what we found is that we complement each other well. And so in areas where one of us uh, thinks a certain way, the other can sometimes uh, temper or correct that. And uh, I think that even in our writing was, was a great strength. And, and so. That's yeah. quite true. I mean, yeah. Jack, yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. I think we do appreciate Barry for the same reasons, but we often draw out maybe different insights or different themes. Uh, because of our temperament and predilections. So yeah, I think it's, mm-hmm. it's a complimentary. Uh, I think that was very evident in the way that and we've written quite a bit now about Barry uh, together. And that has, has been helpful, I think, as we work together on those kind of projects. I, one of the reasons I asked is because I've been thinking about how, I guess I, guess I shouldn't say Barry's having a moment because he's been having moments for a long time. Right. But, um, there seems like there's more and more scholarship coming out about him um, treating, you know, treating his works. And I I suppose it's natural that, you know, as he gets older and, um, some of the things that he wrote 30 and 40 years ago are, you know, turning out to that he was right. People are reflecting on that. And, um, you know, his, his place within, as I guess, as you mentioned earlier, the canon is becoming a little bit more established, but why do you think right now, in particular, so much work is coming out about him and so many thoughtful, um, detailed um, books about both his fiction and his nonfiction, his poetry. There's, there's so many different areas that his his work is being considered. And, you know, as you mentioned in your book, it's not just one particular community, you know, whether it's one particular religious tradition or academic uh, tradition, whatever it is, there's from people from so many different walks of life are interested in him. And why do you think it is? Why does he have such a universal appeal? Um, Jack, I'll ask you that one first, just because I asked Jeff the other one first. I think that at least what I have seen in my students in the sort of last 15 years that I've been teaching college students and what I've seen in my, my own life is that uh, we have a population of middle-aged to young people who are I think, driven by authenticity. And I think that Barry has proven himself to be, you know, as, as much as he, he shies away from the limelight and isn't interested in being, a, you know, a celebrity, they see him as a person who's authentic to his vision and to what he's, he's written about. And I think that carries a great deal of weight. I think you mentioned, you know, the, the sort of prescient nature of the things that he's written 40 and 50 years ago that we see that, that he was right about a lot of that. And that he's not the only one. Um, I think mm-hmm. his accessibility, the accessibility of his writing, it is mm-hmm. not written yeah. in, in the foreign tongue and in jargon that excludes a, a significant portion of, of people. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I also think that he's offering a countercultural narrative that is really attractive to people uh, at a time when we're often told how we're supposed to think and what's acceptable and what's not. 
yeah, if I can piggyback on that, I think yeah. uh, that notion of making like the place or locality attractive is really crucial. That especially in his fiction and his poetry, you know, you you rehab Coulter and you can fall in love with Port William and the membership. Um, so rather than just trying to convert people or convince people on a sort of intellectual level, he uh, appeals to their imaginations and their affections. Mm, yeah. And if I, maybe if Jack gave the sort of sociological or cultural answer, I think I could give a political answer as well, which is that, uh, you know, we're both political parties in the States, are, I think, are becoming increasingly like each other in some ways uh, mm. in terms of centralization and big business and big government. And so the the appeal of a more decentered localist vision is increasing. I think um, when I was in grad school, I I started reading this website called Front Porch Republic, and and have yeah. since they've taken over the editing role and, and been more involved there. And that whole that group of people just published a book uh, this year called Localism in a Mass Age. And I think you know almost every essay cites Barry, mm. uh, you know those Barry is definitely the patron saint of of the front porch. And I think there's just an incredible explanatory power of uh, critiquing so much of the of our American culture and American politics from a sort of Wendell Berry place-based perspective. Mm. Yeah. I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago when around the time the documentary about him came out mm. that was talking about, that was a review of the, the film, but um, I, I was thinking in it, how Barry is a kind of becoming like a folk hero. Like yeah. he's almost larger than life, but I mean, have you have you guys met him or interacted with him at all? Yeah, we have. We uh, in the midst of writing the book, we went with our wives to to meet uh, with him and well, first Tanya. Yeah, first, first we presented, and he was in the room. And this is at a front porch public yeah. conference. It was a nascent form okay. of our. Of and our and our he project. was a keynote. <laughs> we were presenting, the, yeah, the early part of this book, and he walked in just before we started talking. Yeah. As we read uh, the the part that is actually still in the book, where we we say that we take him at his word that if uh, you know a person agrees with him completely, he distrusts that person, and so we're going to disagree with him and say there's hope for higher ed. And <laughs> so afterward, we we were afraid that uh, he would be none too happy, and he came striding down the uh, the aisle and and told us some jokes that we probably can't say on the podcast. <laughs> we're actually pretty uh, pretty enjoyable. He's very kind. Um, yeah, and, and so we went and, and met him at his home to talk with him, to share with him what we were, were doing with our project, and also to, to get permission to uh, use his commencement address as our, our foreword. Mm -hmm. He was uh, more than gracious about that. So did, it, what did, what, did he end up agreeing with what you were, you were saying in, the, in your talk, or did he, did he continue, did he take it up with you? I mean, he, he, I think he agreed with the sort of plight of higher ed. I don't know if yeah, he, I think we have a little bit, I mean, because we work at schools and unlike Barry, we haven't, uh, partly because of financial reasons, right. Uh, we haven't quit our jobs at you know, yeah. the university twice. Yeah. Um, so we haven't quite thrown up our hands and walked away. <laughs> probably your, the, the nature of the schools, the, the school that you work in is probably a little different than when he was at like yeah, UK. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. So I think, and, and you know, he's always his, the Barry Center has been working with a small college. Well, first in in uh, Kentucky, but now uh, Sterling College on their sustainable agriculture program. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, there, you know, he sees the need to work at least with you know a small liberal arts college to try to uh, 
offer a place-centered education. Mm. But yeah, I, I think uh, while we push back a little bit against his dismal tale, the university, we're not that hopeful or a lot of high red either. So yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, so I mentioned the reason I asked is because I mentioned the thing about how I was thinking about how he kind of is become something of a folk hero, like the celebrities who lo- yeah. like Nick Offerman loves him, and you know um, Terrence Malick and Robert Redford produce a documentary about him and right. things like that. But he's like when you meet him, he's not very. Uh, I mean, he's kind of a larger than life character. Like he's he's a he's got you know a big laugh and he's can you know, hold hold court for a long time. But he's also he's sort of like an every every man in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I had the the privilege of sitting at a table with him at the Kentucky Book Fair this past fall. Jeff wasn't able to make it down, and I had our our book at the table with all of his books. And I watched a steady stream all day long of people coming up, wanting pictures, uh, autographs, telling him stories about how much his works meant to them. And uh, the whole time he was, uh, you know, you could tell that he was thankful, but he was also uncomfortable in some ways because I don't think he wants to see himself as that because he understands the dangers of it. Right. Yeah. Um, and he called me honey and tapped my shoulder at one point. So <laughs> there were, there were trumpets and there were lights and I'm not sure what, happened, but <laughs> um, I, uh, I, he's spoken at a, at a couple of conferences that we've put on and we get in 2012, we gave him our annual award, which for some reason he decided to accept. Um, and the conference was in Louisville. So he came to it and he met my, my oldest son who was, I don't think even two at the time, but his name is Coulter. So he met him and then he signed a copy of Hannah Coulter and wrote it to Coulter. And, you know, so we've got that kind of stashed away for when he's older, but he's a very generous person with his time. And so did, did you guys go meet him on a Sunday? Yeah, we went to on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I think that seems to be the way of things. <laughs> you and, and really, you know, it's, it's really a Tanya Berry show when you go, it seems like. Yeah, I was yeah. yeah. I got to interview him in his at his home as well. Um Yeah, I for, that. Yeah, for the for a long sort yeah. of we had 16,000 words and we had to cut it down to like 5, but <laughs> um but yeah, yeah. It, it definitely is the Tanya show, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he came in about uh 20 minutes late. And uh, Tanya was clearly perturbed. And, <laughs> and he had this look on his face. He probably like a, a, a sheepish Andy Catlett. Uh, <laughs> gotten uh, soot all over the curtains. And it was a great moment. Um, so, okay. So let's talk a little bit about his fiction. Because one of the things that you do in the book is... Um, yeah, and you talk about this in the introduction. You kind of break down how you're going to approach each chapter. But you begin with an assessment or an examination of some work of fiction, and you conclude each chapter, I think, every chapter with a poem. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So I'm curious about how you... Um, I guess this is kind of a process question, but maybe we can kind of geek out on some berry fiction for a bit. What, which, um, How did you go about choosing which poems and which works of fiction to to choose? Did you guys have any... you know? fisticuffs over which ones we're going to make it and which ones we're going to get left out? No, there's no, nobody knows. No, no, none at all. I mean, we well, both... That's disappointing. Sorry. <laughs> we both really, I think, uh, and, and this, you know, Jack already shared how he first came to bury through his nonfiction and was kind of turned off and later came back through his fiction. You know, yeah. I approached Barry initially through his fiction. My, uh, in undergrad, I took a class uh, taught by a philosophy prof where we read a lot of his nonfiction and I didn't like it near as much as his fiction. You know, partly because it, it, I didn't agree with a lot of it then. I've since uh, come to be persuaded uh, 
more than not by his arguments. But we really, because of that personal experience both shared, we really felt like if you're going to make a, such a countercultural, uh, kind of absurd argument, right, that the purpose of higher education is not to get the best job you can or to have a successful career, but to go home and serve your place, we're going to have to lead with uh, his fiction, his stories, to try to you know light light the vision before you you argue for it. So that's I think we both were firm believers in that. And then uh, as far as which ones we chose, it's, we kind of thought about the themes, um, and then sometimes we did have to choose between three or four that would fit. But for the most part, I think we came pretty quickly to ones that, that fit the best. Yeah, I think we we knew as a university press book we would that would come with certain assumptions about the text, and we didn't want this to be like uh, a heavy academic university press book that drove people away. We wanted right. to write in a style that was welcoming, but we also wanted our our organization to be consistent and, uh, as Jeff said, sort of invite the reader in and work on their affections in a, in a particular way before maybe getting to some of the more meaty scholarly, uh, parts of the, the book. Hmm. And then, and then since then we've, uh, we wanted to work more on his fiction. So that the last thing we did just this spring was bring out a, a collection of essays on his fiction, because I think we felt like we had more to say about the fiction after that experience. And is that also from the uh, university press of Kentucky? No, this is published by front porch Republic. Okay. Okay. And it's just called Telling the Story is Right, which is a quote from Hannah Coulter. Uh, Telling, and that's out now? It's out now, yeah. And people can find out, can find that, is that Amazon or where would you like people to go to find that? I think there's a, I think you get it cheaper if you go straight to the publisher, which is Front Porch Republic or uh, it's, it's an imprint of Whipsonstock. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But you know, people like Andrew Peterson uh, wrote essays for that collection. So it's a lot of people explaining how Barry's fiction uh, transformed their lives. So mm. that's, yeah, that's kind of been our, since the book, that, since the education book came out, that's kind of where our attentions have turned to fiction more. Well, okay. Let's just linger here for a minute then. Cause you talked about how it's in, in a, a book about how his fiction has changed people's lives. And I think that that's a pretty common, um, pretty common thing. A lot of people, yeah, you know, at least in our, at least in the circles that I'm, <laughs> that I'm a part of, I guess. So that might not be a particularly, this might not be a totally fair statement, but it seems like, there's a lot of people who can directly point to, you know, a novel or a story or a poem that literally did change their lives that, yep. you know, it changed the way they were thinking about the world and how, and, and it led them on a new path. And, you know, I'm not even just talking about people who decided they were going to go um, like live on a farm or something or move out to the country or, or start a garden, but it changed the way they were thinking and it changed you in the book. You've, you talk about the word affections a lot. You've mentioned it a couple of times uh, during this conversation, but people have told me about how they're, they feel like their affections, the way they think about the world and about other people have been changed by his fiction. So with that in mind, I'm curious if you can kind of tell me if there's a story or a, or a novel or something that has done that for you. Like what's the one or two pieces of fiction that for each of you has, has had that effect. Can you point to something specific? Yeah, yeah. I, for uh, for me, the book and it's a this is common. I think uh, many have come to Barry first through Jaber Crow. Yeah, and uh, that novel, I came to it at a time uh, when we had 
actually first moved to Spring Arbor and just a lot of changes in our life uh, that that were difficult, you know, the end of the PhD uh, hangover and, you know, excited to have a new job, but also so much of my life up to that point had been building to this thing. And I came, I came to Jaber Crow really also at a point in my life when I was trying to decide uh, if I would, I would still remain in Christianity. And that book uh, in the moment when he's on the bridge and Mm. in the midst of the storm, I, yeah, you know, I think that I felt very much like I was, I was standing there, uh, with him. And so, you know, to get to the end of that text and to feel, uh, renewed and hopeful, um, I think it, I think it very much changed, uh, changed my life. Hmm. Was it like, a like all of a sudden you read that and you were, that was kind of it or, you know what, it was hope. So it, it offered me hope that I, that I could move forward and I could keep, keep going forward, um, in this all. And so it, you know, then I started teaching the novel and teaching it to students transformed my affections even further, having more conversations. Um, Can you say more about that? Like, how did that, like, what is, what were students experiences with it such that it was changing you? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, right, they're always creeped out by Jaber and Maddie until, you know, you can, uh, point to the, uh, epigram and you, um, or epigraph, I always get those wrong. Why do they have to be so simple? Uh, I'm an English language person. I should finally once and for all get it. Um, but students who for the first time started to see that there was, um, that it was possible to live a simple life and for there to still be beauty and goodness in that, and to see the aha moments of them coming to that and, and loving this character who did nothing significant, at least in our, our eyes, significant culturally his whole life. And to start seeing the wheels turn and the questions they would ask about. So like, what if I do this for a living? This is what I really want to do. Or this is a career I really want to pursue, or I actually do want to go home. And I realized that there were a lot of young people who needed that space to start asking those, those questions and and thinking about home, not as the thing to be uh, left behind, but potentially uh, as a, as a place to return to or wherever they would be for that place to become home and what, what that looked like. And so that started helping me see how this place could, could be that as well. I think Jack and I have talked about this. It's it's striking how so many of our students, their initial impression of Barry is one of resistance you know, this is a, you know, we're, we're at a small Christian school, so we have a lot of MKs or students who, you know, have been told their whole life that they have to make a sort of global impact for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have this sort of abstract yearning for going someplace and doing something big and significant and making a difference, whatever that means. So they're, yeah. you know, they think, what is change the world? Yeah, exactly. And so then they first read Barry, they're like, what is this guy talking about? This is so foolish and unimportant. And then as they, as they keep reading, it's like Jack says, like that someone has given them permission to, uh, to love their homes, to love a particular place and to see that as significant and meaningful and important. And it's liberating. You can kind of see their shoulders relax. They don't have to somehow, you know, it is daunting to try to change the world. <laughs> yeah. And it's so abstract. And it's so, uh, you know, what does that even mean? So I think that they're, there's initial resistance. Yeah, where do you start? Right. And, uh, and that's, you know, so many of them don't start because how can you do that? 
So I think, I think it's a funny process because it starts off, they resist it. And then by the end, most of them, I think, uh, really do fall in love with Barry. Did you have a, what was the novel that, that did that for you? I, I a story, had, short story. Yeah. So many of them, you know, the first one I read was a place on earth. And I just remember weeping, uh, repeatedly through that book. Jaber Crow is my favorite one. And I think, you know, Jaber Crow's theological wrestlings really helped me. Um, in my, in my Christian journey. Uh, but I love Burley Coulter. I think he's hysterical. Um, he's a character and, and his, the, the, the way that he, uh, serves so many people in such, you know, unostentatious, humble ways. He never draws attention to himself, but he sacrifices all of his dreams to serve his nephews, to serve his brother, to serve his mom, service community. Uh, he really inspires me, you know, and, and so, yeah, there's a lot of different characters and, and scenes, but I think like Jack reading Barry has sort of reoriented my professional and personal goals and ambitions. I don't feel like I have to, you know, become an amazing academic or do some great thing because maybe that's not where meaning or significance lie. Yeah. Maybe, like- maybe it's not a great litmus test for, an author's ability, but I have heard many, many people who read Barry talk about uh, the number of times they were, they were in tears, uh, reading, reading his writing. I think that's a, a, a shared experience of people who come to his fiction. And I don't know what that says, but, uh, uh, I think there's something there. Do you think it's that he is, I mean, is it because he's speaking to something contemporary or something universal? Like if you had, I don't know, that's kind of a vague question. I want to say both. You know, mm-hmm. I want to say like Dante, one of his, his favorite works, you know, Dante's Divine Comedy is so particular and local, right? It's about, I mean, it is about, there, there are all kinds of historical figures in there, but it's, there's also just a sure. lot of politics. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a book about Catholic universals. So I think there is the same thing where it's so particular, so local, and yet the the way that he addresses it uh, is absolutely universally true. Mm. So, so he's yeah, he kind of opens that up for us. Well, you know, you mentioned, I think it was you, Jeff, that mentioned that maybe you both did actually that when you first started reading Barry, you didn't care for it for it, um, and you disagreed with a lot of what he was saying. And in the book, you talk. Was it both of you that said that? Yeah, I think Jack initially, but yeah, me, me as well, because when I came to his nonfiction, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, and with Jack, Jack, was it you said the nonfiction was what you disagreed with as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this, this wasn't what I was going to say or ask, rather, but that strikes me as, as interesting that when you read the nonfiction, you disagreed, but as you read the fiction, you came to agree with his ideas. That's a really interesting... Yeah, yeah. That's that's very fascinating. That says a lot about the power of um, of art. <laughs> yeah, I think we've and in our our most recent book, the the collection of essays. That's what we one of the things we try to articulate is that it is a uh, there is a different way of knowing that comes about through uh, fiction and poetry, and that works on our affections in a way that I think, in some ways, is more persuasive today. When, uh, you know, we have, we have political figures who invent facts or ignore facts and uh, people are not as persuaded by facts as they are by uh, fiction. And one, one anecdote I think that captures this is Jamie Smith. I think it's in, 
Imagine the Kingdom, maybe. I can't remember the desire. One of his cultural literature books. Yeah. At the beginning, he's talking about how uh, humans are first, you know, loving creatures. We, we, we love before we uh, are rationally persuaded. And he, he describes, you know, reading one of Barry's books of essays about local food and sustainable agriculture and being like, yes, this is so right. Yes, this is so right. Amen. And then he looks up and he's in the food court at, uh, at Costco. And he says, this is probably, you know, one of Wendell Berry's uh, levels of hell. Uh, and here I, you know, I'm in the food court at Costco, yet I rationally agree with Barry that like there's just some gap. And so he, you know, his argument then is, well, we need to think more about the, the habits and narratives that shape us on a sort of precognitive level. And uh, I think that speaks also to why Barry writes fiction, because it's not enough to just cognitively persuade people of some of these things if you're asking people to make radical lifestyle uh, changes. You have to first help them fall in love with a different vision, a different uh, way of life. Mm. Um, well, I want to transition a little bit more specifically into the book a little bit. We should at least talk about the book for a few minutes, yeah. right? right? So well, the reason I asked about the disagreements thing is because in the book, or in the introduction, pretty much pretty early in the introduction, as I recall, you address four misconceptions. Um of Barry's work. And I'm curious if your disagreements with him stemmed uh, from the fact that maybe you bought into those misconceptions. Um, you talk about how people often think that Barry's vision only applies to farmers and doesn't have anything to offer to urbanites or suburbanites. You mentioned that his notion, some people think that his notions of hierarchy and health are an oppressive holdover from the middle ages, which I, Jack, I imagine you have a lot to say about that. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned that Barry, some people think Barry's too Christian or perhaps not Christian enough. And then the fourth one is that um, Barry's insistence on the local and the small is unrealistic in a global interconnected society and a university guided by such principles cannot be financially sustainable. Um, so I'm curious. Yeah, I guess my question is, were your, were your disagreements then tied to, to, those four, um, to those four misunderstandings? I'll speak for myself as Jeff. I think the last one that it's not realistic uh, was probably closest to, to my initial um, criticisms of his nonfiction. You know, it sounds great on paper, but this isn't practical anymore. This is not the way the modern society works. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of those, and actually that section we wrote near the end of the book and put it back in the introduction after we'd already written the intro. Hmm. And part of, I think, where I, if I remember the, the conversations we had, uh, it came from presenting on, on this in various contexts and hearing questions and pushback from various audiences. And that's, yeah. you know, what if we can sort of head off some of these initial objections yeah. and, yeah. and try to gain a hearing? I think that's how it would. Well, I, I, so, okay, Jack, did, were your disagreements stemming from one of those as well? Yes. Um, I think <laughs> the one Jeff mentioned... Uh, our last one, certainly, um, the Barry's vision only applies to farmers. Having been in a farming community and, and having worked on a farm, um, I felt like I wanted to leave that behind because I saw how quickly my hometown was falling apart because of the loss of, of farms uh, owned yeah. by individual farmers. We have a corporation that essentially bought out all of the farmers in a 20-year period. Yeah. And I think that I, it was, it was too much 
in my face, the reality of what I was experiencing growing up that I didn't want to, I didn't want someone to tell me that, that, that sense in me was right. I didn't, I didn't want to acknowledge that that is really changing. And so I, I instead thought, who is this guy and what does he have to say about it? Um, but I also think I was shaped a little bit by the, the notion of hierarchy and health. Um, this idea of, of this hopeful, hopelessly romantic idea of nature. I think it was also strangely enough being raised in an evangelical church in a Baptist church in the country, we had people who loved nature, who loved hunting, who loved being out on the lakes and fishing and saw the beauty in it. And yet simultaneously talked about the place as, uh, though it were a mistake and mm-hmm. sort of eschatological mm-hmm. approach to nature that sees it as something to be destroyed and therefore not to be maintained, or at least we shouldn't care about it too much. And mm-hmm. I felt like Barry was a person telling me that I needed to care about it a lot more than I should. And it seemed to me that's, that's the old way of. So there was some dissonance in her, in, in your soul when you were yeah. experiencing that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so I, I, eventually he was the person who called me back to my uh, love of nature. And, in you know, it's, I'm, I'm sorry to say it was the, the thing that was sort of pushed out of me as a, as a young person. So you grew up in this farming community and Jeff, you grew up in a rural area as well. Is that what you said? Uh, I grew up mostly on the outskirts of Seattle, but okay. uh, we spent a year in a very remote uh, community in central Washington. And that was very formative on our life, my life. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you, well, Jack, at least you grew up in this farming community and you felt like, and you just wanted to run away. Yes. But it was, you know, it was strange because I love the place and I still do today. I'm grieved when I, I visit my my parents there and I see more and more things uh, turning to dilapidation. And uh, with some of my fondest memories are waking up on a Saturday morning and going with my dad down to the Village Cafe. It's called Village Cafe. <laughs> all of the old timers were there, all the farmers. And, and, you know, it was smoke covered because, of course, you could still smoke back in the good old days. <laughs> And I remember sitting there listening to them all talk about anything and everything. And that vision of that community where you knew Shar who ran the village cafe and you knew the farmers who came in. I, you know, I absolutely loved that. And I, it has always felt like home to me and something happened along the way that by the time I, I was a senior in high school, I, I could not way to get out. And I'm, I'm not the only one. That is a very yeah, common, right, right. every person in my graduating class. So one of the things that you guys talk about in the book that, um, that I think a lot of our listeners will uh, recognize is just the idea that in our universities right now, and hopefully this will transition us more directly into the book for a few minutes, is that the universities right now and particular and education in general, modern education in general, is so much about um, the idea of changing the world and, you know, making something of yourself and, you know, the whole boomer notion, like getting up and um, going somewhere else and um, that, that, um, that any, anywhere else is better than where you are, sort of. So did you find, I mean, did you find that you, or do you think that your education was one of the things that was informing that, that sense that you needed to leave. And I mean, like, obviously there are, um, there are 
great sweeping changes that have happened in rural communities, probably in the communities that both of you were in. And those things are very real and they're dramatic and they're um, affecting things, you know, for the neg- for the, for the worse. But was it also, was it more than just these things that were happening? Was there a way of thinking about the place and talking about the place that caused you to think and talk about it in a negative way that then led you to leave? For me, it was honestly, if I have to point back to it, it was, it was never my parents. They never made me feel like I had to go and make something of myself and I had to, had to get away. It was, you know, in the late nineties, uh, there was a general sentiment among families that, you know, you should go to college because that was the way to, to have a good living. And, uh, but honestly, I, I think it was my church that shaped that in me because I was, I was certain I was going to be a youth minister I was a youth ministry intern at my church. I went into college as a youth ministry major for the first semester. Um, The push was very much to go out and make disciples. And so that meant leaving behind a place. And I think in some ways to kill some of the affection for that place, I had to vilify it. And um, not to, not to, uh, psychoanalyze myself here, but I think <laughs> that was uh, a lot of what was going on. I think there were plenty of people at, at my school who who demonstrated you could live a good life in a town like that and still be an educated person. Hmm. Yeah, I think for me it was more just the economics, especially once I chose uh, literary studies. Uh, you know, I wanted to go back home and never, I haven't managed to do it yet. And not Jackson, I can't go back home. So. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, I don't think I yeah I don't think I had quite the same experience as Jack, but I also think I had a yeah they're just different. Everyone's experience about you know growing up in their place is different. So mm-hmm. so we talked you you talked about how you know Barry is much more cynical about higher education yeah. than you are. Where do you think that the kind of fundamental differences between the between um, y'all's perspective and his perspective? Well, I do think you already named the big one, which is his experience was with almost exclusively big state schools and our experience, I mean, Jack, Jack's gone to state schools as well, big ones, but um, our experience is more centered around Christian liberal arts schools, uh, which I think are a lot smaller and obviously, and you have, they're not quite as corporatized as UK would have been or is. So that's part of it. Um, But I think, you know, even here, our our school is not perfect. Um, And a lot of times we feel like we have to do, know do the things that we love and things we believe in kind of outside or extra institutionally uh you know whether it be starting a community garden or the kinds of books we assign our class and the curricular decisions we make uh you know yeah it's not always it's you know you're not always going to get a whole institution to get behind uh place-centered education Yeah. yeah i think in some ways too maybe just very practically our perspective is somewhat born out of necessity. We are yeah. yet professors at a university and uh, Barry uh, got away from that life and I think gained a perspective because of that. Yeah. So in some ways, we, we don't want to give up on that endeavor yet. And so uh, we felt that desire to to see, you know, can... If do we're it, here, how can we do it right, well? If we're here, how can we do it well? Yeah. And understanding it will be imperfect. Or maybe, you know, do we, do we need to get out of the, do we need to get out of it if it's, uh, if there's no hope and I, you know, we're both still teaching. So 
either yeah. we haven't found jobs in the corporate world <laughs> or uh, you haven't bailed on it yet. You haven't decided it's hopeless yet. So do you, well, so if you, do you think, so if there are some sort of disagreements, at least, well, maybe not disagreements, but at least if, if he's more cynical about it, then as you're writing, you were writing this book and really this is what the book's about. What did you find in his work that you felt could um, inform um, the way education is done today, even if he doesn't believe in, he doesn't have the hope in it that you guys do. There's obviously something in his work and in his ideas that um, you think can help um, improve and kind of fulfill the hope that you guys have in it. How would you sort of explain that in a couple of sentences? Well, to pick up on what Jack was just talking about, you know, I think Barry, uh, a lot of his writing, his essays that are explicitly about the university, he's taking a more uh, institutional level approach. Um, and, and that can be kind of dire. But if you look at it from the grassroots, from the ground up as a faculty member or even a staff member within a university, there are often a lot of things that you can do that are good. I think, I think it's Wes Jackson who talks, I can't, I can't remember the school he was at, he was at some big school, some big ag school. And he's, you know, look, there's classrooms here, there's a library here. You know, this would be a good place to have a school. You could, you could do good things here. In spite of the corporatization and, uh, you know, the problems that big universities have. So I think that's why, you know, what can we do in our classrooms and in our department, uh, at, at small schools to make them better? And so that's why we thought about you know, things that are manageable and that we can implement, like telling different stories, you know, inspiring our students' imaginations, uh, inviting them to, to get out of the classroom and, and get their hands dirty. So uh, the, the structure and ideas in the book, I think, came from us thinking about, well, how could we take the ideas that Barry talks about in his vision and implement them in even small, imperfect ways right now? What do you guys think of Barry inspired college would look like like if you were starting a college and well i think there's already a berry college but let's just say it's uh the wendelberry university <laughs> and you guys get to you guys get to make the decisions what would it look like well barry would be furious to have his name on it <laughs> <laughs> well that the, then you can have some fun with that and you can you know call it the burley Coulter college or something there you go. <laughs> well i think i think maybe um the first thing i would say is that a, a university or a college like that would there would not be a one size fits all shape to it. You know, I think that it's Sterling is it Sterling College yeah. that now has the the Berry program there, farming or agriculture based. But I think that there could be uh, iterations of of it that would be in urban places and that would consider uh, the place itself and ask the questions that that need to be asked about it. Um, so it, it would be a university that would be shaped by the people who live in that community and who in, are invested in it. And it would be importantly concerned with the, the goings on of the local community and not parochial in the sense that it, it is also unaware of its connection to the greater world. Right. Uh, but, you know, that it would really and I know, uh, you know, some might say it's a community college, but one of the other uh, parts of this would it, it is that it would need to be a robust liberal arts institution as well yeah one that wasn't just designed to educate students to get out you know I, but right, i think the right. point is that you can't have a one single bear institution because it has to be locally adapted mm -hmm. um so that's, and that's why i think the diversity of of uh higher ed in the states is a 
remarkable gift in some ways that there are these small schools around. And, and we talk about some, like we talked about Paul Quinn, I think, um, which is in mm-hmm. urban uh, Dallas and the way that they have converted their football, they scrapped their football program and converted the uh, football field into a, a farm. So I think it's, you know, local schools thinking about what does our place need and how can we meet those needs and not just in a simply economic sense or a, as that's usually meant, but in a, a broadly based communal sense, like what does our, what kind of people does our community need and how can we educate mm. our neighbors so they can better meet those needs? Do you think that it's inherently better for a student, a graduating senior to be going to a school within their community? I think all is be equal, probably yes. But I think um, most students do attend schools that are within, I don't know, what, three-hour drive from home, something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, it's, it, yeah, I, was, right. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I'm guessing 80% of college students, you know, traditional undergrads in the States are attending a school within three hours from their home. But yeah, essentially local school, yeah. Right, but oftentimes that's like their stepping stone to getting further afield, right? So that's like their first step out of the household with a safe place and they can go home on the weekends or every couple months. But, but that's where they get their taste of, you know, kind of a place. Offward mobility. Yeah, exactly. And then, so it's their launch pad. Yeah. So I think uh, it's so great. You, Go ahead. Sorry. There was a, the great thing about doing this on the internet is there's always this little lag. <laughs> right. So, so then would you say that um, it it's not, it's not, it, it's not the act of staying locally. That is what's valuable. It's when the local place is, it's training and cultivating people who know how to and are capable of participating in the life of the place. It's not about getting people to stay home. It's about getting them to stay home and be some, be something productive and virtuous within that community. Yeah. Yeah. I would say there's a danger of committing the, the opposite sin of, you know, everyone needs to go to college to get away and then, then uh, come upwardly mobile the opposite sin of that would be to say that you should never leave or your only goal should be to return home. And I I think more of what we're saying is the majority of students are comfortable with making a place home. The majority of students are um, content with not being the CEO or being the, uh, the rock star. And, and I think we're just trying to say like, let's, let's embrace that reality and start, shaping institutions that will uh, help that large number of, of students instead of feeding them a sort of false narrative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's in the look and see film that uh, Tanya is talking to Laura and she, you know, she quotes Gary Snyder who says, uh, because, because Laura asks Tanya, well, look, not, not everybody can go back to their, you know, community in Kentucky and buy a farm next to their parents and be a fifth generation farmer. And Tanya says, yeah, but uh, we can all stop someplace. And so I think part of mm. the goal of such an institution would be to teach students uh, that they can stop someplace, settle down and serve that, that place uh, and get significance from that rather than getting significance and meaning uh, from some globetrotting successful career. Mm. I'm going to get all pop culture here. Oh, um, Jeff loves it when I do this, but uh, maybe maybe you all saw recently. I don't. Was it Forbes? Some magazine had. Uh, I think it was Kylie. Kylie. No, which Kardashian? One of the Kardashians. 
uh, who they, they said was, you know, up and coming because she's a self-made billionaire. And <laughs> yeah, Cause she started with multi-millions. That's right. With, with <laughs> just nothing. And, uh, and that, <laughs> that's an example of that narrative we pushed uh, where the, the reason you do something is so that you can end up in this, this grand place. And we were in a meeting with an administrator a while ago and, and the person said that, you know, we, we want to be shaping CFOs, not accountants. And I, and you know, it struck me because I thought, no, the it's a small market, it is a very small market. And, and what we need are more people who are very good, uh, CPAs. And, uh, we need fewer people who think they're C- CFOs. Right. And, and so to me, the, the, the push is, is strange. We have, I think it is the cultural push of upward mobility has deeply influenced the uh, the way we think of educating. We're not educating. We're not bringing students out of something, leading them out of something. We are claiming that we're going to make them credentialed so they can they can get a particular job. And you know, and like Jack says, part of that is changing the narrative. I mean, one of the students that I'm most proud of, uh, and she credits a lot of this to Wendell Berry because she had a, a class with me on, that we just read Berry. Uh, she's from a town that's ten minutes from our school. Um, she came here to college. Uh, and now she's a second grade teacher uh, in town, you know, and I, she loves her students. She's invested in the community. She's in, uh, on the board of her church and involved in charities here in town. I, to me, she's an ideal graduate and she's never going to be, you know, featured on some, what, 30 under 30 list. That's or, right. You know, one of these, you know, rising stars, but man, she's a star. Uh, yeah. So I, I think part of it is just kind of changing the narrative of what counts as success. And we had another student who uh, took a Barry class and she didn't stay in the area, but she went to teach on the east side of the state. And and I got a really nice note from her when she said that she had put a lot of plants in her classroom and it was because of the Barry class and she wanted to connect the students to nature because, um, you know, they just, they weren't getting that in, in Metro Detroit. And Mm -hmm. And I think of Robert McFarlane's um, book that's recently come out, um, Lost Words, and uh, Jackie, and I'm going to get her last name wrong, is it Jackie Morris, the illustrator uh, of that, that book. And, and it has been wildly popular, and it, all it's doing very simply is trying to connect young and old alike to nature and to give us the words, even the language to talk about nature again, words we've, we've lost. So many, many of our listeners, some of our listeners are, you know, involved in higher ed. Many of them are um, just, you know, homeschoolers or school teachers or administrators or whatever. And they're just kind of like your students, former students who are teaching in these schools, you know, they're, you know, day by day, just continuing on and trying to cultivate um, virtuous, you know, virtue in, in their students. And, what advice would you have for people in those kind of settings? You're writing for, you know, higher education and you're trying to find a way to, you know, combat some of the things that Barry's concerned about. But that, you know, I would think that it still would apply to, you know, the mom who has four kids who's homeschooling or the teacher who's got 22 kids in, in inner city Detroit or, or whatever, whatever it is that, so how, what, what are some principles you think would apply in those kind well, of settings as well? Yeah. I mean, Maybe I remember one time I was sitting in an airport reading uh, Memorable Jack. No, sorry. I was sitting in an airport and, and the guy across from me, sitting in the chair next to me, was reading Memorable Jack. 
So I said, oh, that's a great book. I love that author. We, we got into a conversation and he homeschools his kids hmm. uh, and, and actually ended up being a member of an intentional Christian community. Um, and, and so, and I talked, I hadn't read the book yet, but we had, you know, we talked about my aspiration to be a university professor and to try to embody some of Barry's uh, ideas at that level. And he said to me, don't you think you're starting too late? Uh, and I think that's true. You know, I think it's really hard to uh, change the trajectory of an 18 year old's life. I think it's possible, um, but it's a lot easier when they're younger. So I think, you know, elementary and middle school and high school teachers uh, and administrators, and of course, parents uh, are really the ones who are in the trenches and have a big role to play in shaping their the values and aspirations of students and children. I mean, you know, Hannah, the, the title of our, our other book about Barry comes from Hannah Coulter, reflecting on the stories that she and Nathan just told their kids around the campfire in summer evenings. So uh, there's a lot of, depending on what kinds of influence or settings you're, you're, you have, uh, I think there's unspectacular yet vital ways of re-narrating success and re-narrating the kinds of virtues that you want your students to embody. Yeah, and I would I would add maybe a, a story. We had a, a millage in town for the public schools here in the last uh, two weeks that failed. And um, personally, I I was glad it failed. Um, I, I wouldn't say I was glad. I I preferred that it would fail for various reasons. But in speaking with a, a family who homeschools. Um, the the wife had said, well, I didn't vote because I didn't know what I should uh, do. And, and I just, I, because we're not in the public schools, it, it wasn't sort of something I was concerned with. And so my encouragement to those who are homeschooling would be um, if, if it begins to feel as though homeschooling is a way to escape from what's happening for the majority of people in the community, that to maybe spend time to think about how instead it should be a way for you to become more involved in, in the activities of that community with the understanding that the overwhelming majority of people in the town are participating in public education. And so that homeschooling doesn't necessarily uh, remove the responsibility you have to care for your neighbors who, who may be uh, in a public school system that is not... Yeah on the type of education that that students get in a wonderful uh, homeschool education. Mm. Yeah. One of my probably biggest concerns is that about homeschooling and about a lot of the schools that we are engaged with, you know, really good, um, really good to pretty good uh, private um, classical schools who consider themselves pretty rigorous academically and um, Mm. are pretty proud of that. The students that they're producing. One of my biggest concerns about those kind of things is still the idea that, you know, what's the, how do you judge your, the quality of your job as a homeschooler or as a school, right? And a lot of times it's simply, you know, what schools are they getting into? Where jobs are they getting? Where are we sending them off to? And it's not, that's not really any different than the things they're trying to avoid. And they're just sort of setting themselves apart to be, and I'm not saying, like to those who are listening, I'm not saying that you are doing that. I'm just saying that's one of my concerns that could happen is that we could spend too much time um, focusing on like, some kind of very specific end product that our students, the end product being where our students are headed to next. Absolutely. And I was homeschooled all the way through high school and I, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Um, 
I think my parents did a good job uh, in, in getting us involved in the community, but it takes a lot of intentionality and work on that. Um, but I have seen some good data, uh, I think from Cardis up in Canada, that I think is just Canadian, but maybe all of North America, on the, the way, apparently, students in private schools and homeschoolers uh, get more invested in volunteer activities and community life upon graduation, on average anyway, than uh, in students in public education. So I think there's at least... Yeah, there's a lot that you could, that could, that could be causing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's it, loaded. But I think it, it's a common misconception that homeschoolers are necessarily disengaged, and yet they do have to work really hard and intentionally to avoid that. Because, yeah, homeschooling, you still got to serve your community. Yeah, and I suppose the the benefit is that in some ways it gives you the freedom to to focus your attention in very specific ways to figure out like what's your calling yeah. in the community and and where and and you can be active in it in very specific yeah. ways. And whereas the school is gonna in some ways the, the the life of the school is going to dictate your participation. You know, the freedom of homeschooling allows you to identify your calling. Yeah, but and then you have to use that freedom well. Yeah, yeah. Do you? Do you, what do you think Barry would think of homeschooling? I mean, we've talked to him about this, about this a little bit, but only in passing and never really in any kind of depth. I don't know. Yeah, you would know more. I think, yeah, you, yeah. if he spoke of that, your conference, I would think, I don't think he's ever, actually, he may mention it in, at the end of uh, Work of Local Culture. Uh, if I'm, I think, I mean, yeah, if, if I'm re recalling correctly, I think the passing reference I've seen in his work is a positive one where he thinks that's, you know, if our schools really, uh, he, you know, he was a big, uh, he was very disappointed by school consolidation and that movement, right. As right. students get bust further and further from their homes. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it was really in response to that, that he holds out some hope for the homeschooling movement, but that was an essay. It's probably 30 years old. So yeah, it's changed a little bit since then. Yeah. Um, what do you see? what do you see as the future of um, the American university? I mean, do you, do you think it's going to, you obviously have hope for it, but you also admit that probably the, the smaller scale schools are going to have the best chance to succeed in the ways that you feel like they need to. So do you feel like as far as the bigger schools, at least in the short term, very cynicism is well-founded and probably the, the issues are going to only be compounded. Um, I know there's a lot of this big debt bubble out there. A lot of people are concerned about, um, mm -hmm. what do you, what do you guys, you know, put on your prophecy hats here and just what do you think is going to, well, the things happen? that, the things that keep me up late at night are, I think what, what we're going to see is a greater consolidation of, uh, smaller state schools into just a few very large state school systems. And I think that what you'll see with many of the, the private liberal arts schools is that um, many of them will disappear in the next 20 years. And, and I think that those who survive will do so by offering rigorous education that isn't just a uh, sort of cheap knockoff of what you can get at a state school, but with a Christian veneer or a... Yeah. Yeah. liberal arts veneer. So just and you call it a Christian school. That's right. That's right. And I, and I think that, um, I think administrators are, are probably aware of that in many ways at institutions like ours, 
but it seems from what we've seen and, and, and this is not, uh, necessarily a comment on our, our institution, but we've seen it at other institutions, the sort of panicked response is to, uh, add more programs, become more STEM, reduce the general education curriculum and sort of do all of these things that make us more and more like, um, a state school. And, uh, and I, I think that will eventually run out and you will have those who have maintained their identity and also who have large endowments who, uh, who will be around and, and survive in 20 years. Do you have anything to add to that, Jeff? I have no idea. That's, that was I so have, hopeful. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I have, I'll say, I have zero <laughs> optimism, but I have a lot of hope. I think uh, all the trends are dire and educa- higher education in America is a mess, but people need to learn. And uh, there's a lot of great uh, people in higher education. And uh, I think incredible learning and growth and transformation is happening, you know, in spite of the structural problems. So, um, you know, when I, when I stand back and look at higher ed, I get really depressed. When I go into my classroom, I get really invigorated and excited. And I, you know, so. And I think the tides turn, you know, I, I think of Michigan, you know, where we're at and the, I believe we were just uh, placed last of all states for third grade reading. And this is after, uh, yeah, (laughs) after, you know, we've, uh, we've gone through all these curricular changes and uh, a lot of money has been state, spent by the state on, on correcting reading problems. And, and I think what we're finding is that a lot of these claims that uh, sort of bureaucrats will make or educational experts will make about the need for STEM and all these other things, they, they tend to be undermining the basic literacy and numeracy uh, skills that we, that we need for, for students. And so I think we are coming back to that realization that, oh, these language skills, reading and writing, they actually are important to forming an ed- educated citizenry. And so, you know, there, I think there will be a resurgence of that. So our discipline won't feel so maligned. Um, so that, that allows me to be a little hopeful too. Do you have, do you have kids? Yeah, I have one. Yeah. And I have, I have three from all the way from seventh grade, uh, well, seventh grade, fifth grade and uh, second grade starting. So- I'm curious, I guess the reason I ask is because I'm curious what you, what you think, like, what would you do with your kids when it comes to college? I mean, they're mm-hmm. Jeff's how old is your, your, your uh, child? Three years old. So I got a little bit of time. Yeah. You got some time to think about it. I mean, where do you see, okay. So I've got, you know, young kids as well. So where do you see Jack? You said you're oldest in seventh grade. Yeah. Yeah. So, like in, you it's know, five, been, five years. Exactly. We've been having that, that freak out uh, moment when we're like, uh, in, in five years, he's going to be <laughs> already, uh, leaving and or thinking about where to go. And our, you know, I hear Hannah's words. Did we, did we tell the stories right? And, mm-hmm. and it's tough at times. It's tough at times when higher ed is in such turmoil. And I, I think, am I speaking about this place in such a way that my kids will want to leave here? And so we just have that conversation with them that, if you hear us frustrated about something with the institution, understand that we love the place and the people. And all of our children so far have said they really want to go to SAU. Now, uh, that's in part because they'll get tuition remission. But you know, <laughs> yeah. we also talk about we're having very serious conversations about the cost of higher education and 
and uh, and that it's good to be in this place and with people you know. But we're also letting them have the freedom of thinking of of other places. But most of all, I don't want the conversation to be you're going to do this or you're going to do that because I'm at least with one of our children, I know that that will guarantee that uh, she will do the opposite. Or so, he. or he, not to point out. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, I think about this a lot. I'm, my oldest is only six. Um, but I, I, um, I just wonder, I'm not, I mean, it's not the part that I'm, I don't know. There's just so many things to, to think about. I'm, I don't know that I'm concerned that they're going to go off and run away and not, care about this place i mean i'm obviously concerned about that but i'm also wondering like how do you know if if college is for your for a specific person um and i think one of the things that for 50 years now i don't know maybe since world war ii maybe not quite that long um but it seems like when it comes to education when it comes to learning the kind of universally accepted principle is that if you're not going to college you know people think lesser of you. Um, college is for everybody. It's the ultimate show of true education, um, leading to things like apprenticeships and trades and things like that being diminished, um, in terms of the cultural conversation and and the way we think about them. And so uh, how do you, how do you know, like if you were giving me advice, how do I know? I mean, my kid's six year old, like I said, but how do I, how will I know in, you know, 10 years or whatever that this is a student that should go to college? Um, assuming that colleges are, still what they are right now in 10 years. My wife had a, had a very uh, interesting experience with that growing up because her brother um, was not interested in school much at all for various re- complicated reasons, but he was not, uh, you know, it, he, he struggled to finish his, his uh, high school degree because not because he couldn't, but because he just didn't understand the point of it. Yeah. And then he went to college, to community college for a semester or two. And it wasn't until he finally acknowledged that he, he didn't want to go to college that he began working at a Toyota uh, dealership in the shop and then uh, went through training and became Toyota certified. And, you know, now he's uh, a, a really successful mechanic who has his pick of jobs throughout the nation and loves what he does. and. And so for us, the, the example there, or at least the lesson there is, uh, I'm not sure that Rob knew that he could do this and it would be a good life because of those things you said, that there's a sense that, well, you know, it won't be lucrative. It won't be a great career. And it feels like a failure to some people. Right. It absolutely does. And, and instead, you know, he's doing something he loves. And uh, quite frankly, I would love to be making what he's making a year. Uh, he's <laughs> just fine in terms of, you know, cause I think that's also attached to it, that economic, well, you won't make a lot of money. Well, I mean, that's, there are more jobs than, than working on a line in the factory and you know, there, there's a spectrum there. And yeah, I think that probably comes from something related to, um, some really dire economic um, situations in certain places, especially rural communities where, you know, the jobs weren't there in the coal mines or whatever. And so you really did have to go somewhere and try to go to college yeah, and try, try to get a job. So, you know, that's not, that wasn't, that idea I think stems from something very real. Um, but I think it was taken and blown out of proportion in terms of the way we, the way 
well, our affections and the way the conversation has been shaped, I think it, it blew that up in a way that's somewhat negative. Yeah. Um, Jeff, what about you? Do you have any thoughts on that? Like what would a... Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Jack that I think we need to not uh, make it sound like higher education is the only viable or worthy option. Uh, I also think that... Uh, I don't know, I, it's complicated. I think, it would be, I think there's a lot of important things that happen at a Christian liberal arts school that can be transformative for students' lives. Mm-hmm. But even if your, your future career uh, or your economic work isn't necessarily benefited or directly, you know, follows from your education. I think a Christian liberal arts education is just simply valuable. But if it costs so much that then you're in debt and then you have to get a high paying job and you have to go wherever the job goes, then it, that can really be detrimental and cause problems. So yeah, I, I don't know. I wish we could make uh, college cheaper because I think that would enable, that would give students more flexibility to come uh, and not feel all the pressure of then getting a high-paying job to pay off their loans and making it a workforce. And that gets back to the earlier question you had about, you know, what, what the Barry University would look like. Oh, yeah. And and I think for both of us, we would love uh, to work at and or be a part of a work consortium type of school where students are working at the university, they're providing many of the services that are needed for the place to function and flourish, and that that makes their education more affordable. And I think there are several lo- examples of, of local institutions yep. doing that. And Berea is is one of those, and College of the Ozarks, and and they don't compromise academic rigor to do that. That's honestly what I would love to see popping up, maybe in the in my premonition and of the 20, 20 years from yeah. now of schools closing down is that maybe there's a goodness in that, that what we'll start to see is more of these institutions show up that, that make it affordable. When you're sitting in your classroom, can you look at your students and say, or, or has it ever happened that you look at your students and you can say that student doesn't belong in college? Oh, every oh, semester. Yeah, all the time. All- so what does the student that doesn't belong in college look like? Most like, are there any common, common characteristics? You don't want to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, yeah. Okay. I just drew a sketch. Can your listeners see it? <laughs> um, I, mean, I think there's a lot of students who, for whatever their parents are paying, I have no idea. Or they're here because they want to play a sport, but they don't want to go to class. I mean, yeah. look, you, I can work with a student who maybe is not, you know, a genius, right? Like you can work with a student who uh, is not brilliant, but uh, if the student doesn't want to be here, if their heart's not here, if they don't have a de- the desire to learn, then I don't care how smart you are, it's going to be a miserable experience for all of us. That's, I mean, <laughs> I will, uh, you know, some people, they, they have, um, they have a face whose acronym I will, I will not share, but you know, they, they, <laughs> they don't mean to look um, as though they're disinterested in what's going on and they just do. And, and usually when you talk to those students, you come to learn that, but there will be students in class. I, I've, I describe it as a person who looks like they, they just, they wish a rock would fall on your head in that moment. Um, you know, that they, they, <laughs> could not imagine being in a worse place than in a classroom hearing you talk about Beowulf. 
And, and I, I think those students who lack intellectual curiosity, who can't see how uh, a course in sociology connects to a course in literature and are unwilling to see how they, they connect with one another, those are the students that I almost immediately recognize as, as ones who will not be here long. And, and so then, you, oh, go ahead. Well, do you just, I mean, is that a character flaw? Like, is that something that, or is that just a, well, a personality? I don't, a, I don't know if it's a character flaw so much as it is a defense. I think that they will get into a class where they don't, they haven't been trained to uh, think like a sociologist. They haven't been trained to read literature. And so they're overwhelmed and they feel like they're going to fail uh, at it anyway, because they don't have experience. I, I think that has to do with this generation in some ways that if they're not good at it naturally the first time, it's harder for them to want to get into it. And, and they, we talk about this all the time, that risk and failure is a part of, of how we do life. And I think that they're very much risk averse. They, they're afraid of taking uh, that, that step. And, but I do believe that that can be changed and that affection can be changed. I know Jeff and I both in, in our classes, we are passionate about what we teach and students come alive. It can even, and this might be surprising, can even be medieval literature. They can come <laughs> alive when they see that the person teaching it has passion for it. And, um, because I think if Jack loves it so much, it can't be that bad. Like you got to be something yeah. you're interested in. And then they get to know right. me. Like, no, it actually can be that <laughs> bad. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think the, also the, the other thing for me that right away, especially in college writing classes that I, I will see, and I can just about predict with hundred percent accuracy, whether or not a student will, will, uh, persist. It is, uh, their basic writing ability. And, um, those basic literacy skills are almost always an indicator if they don't have them, and I'm not talking about writing, you know, college level prose. I'm saying, can you point out a verb? Can you write a complete sentence? When I encounter a student who is uh, at that point, it's almost certainly yeah. a student who will not be here in, in a few semesters. Hmm. So, um, so now I'm thinking there's like two kinds of students who shouldn't be at college, the ones who just aren't prepared. And then there's got to be some that just, their personality as such or their yeah. calling as such that they shouldn't yeah. be there. Do you think that, that, well, like what percentage of students in college that you guys run into, would you say, think about the idea of calling? I think a as lot opposed to just like vision. Yeah. I think a lot of them do, but not necessarily robustly or I think, you know, a lot of it comes back to, well, I feel called to this, but I want to make a lot of money. So, right. Like right. I need to make enough money. Yeah. I feel called to this, but I'm supposed to do this. Like yeah. because people say that I'm supposed to. We have a, we have a former student who, um, Jeff and I, neither Jeff nor I had him in class, but he was a business major through his four years. And though his family kept telling him, you know, you're, it is clear that your calling is in something other than business. And he graduated and, and then, uh, just about immediately went to seminary because Hmm. that was, you know, where his passion and, and calling was. And it, you know, it just, it takes time and sometimes it's not even going to happen when, uh, when they're in college, they will come to that knowledge later. Well, we haven't talked directly about the book and we haven't talked directly about Barry for a while, but I feel like a lot of the things that we're talking about are at least, you know, peripheral. So 
Well, I've kept you for quite a while now, over an hour. So I want to conclude with something that is directly very. Do you happen to have a copy of the book in front of you? Yes. Or near you? Because um, what I'd love to do is I'd love to conclude by having you each um, read one of the poems at the end of the chapters. Um, just pick one that's particularly meaningful to you, which means you can't choose the same one. Um, and I wonder if you'd be, I wonder if you'd be willing to read that out loud for us um, as we conclude to conclude this episode. Yes. We're, we're, we're You're searching. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you need me to talk. I can talk for a while. I can just <laughs> talk about random things, talk about the weather, okay. we'll talk some more about baseball. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. This is for the very last one, the community one. And this poem is, I, I've got a broad side of this poem. I want uh, to read that. Stuff like this. Jeff. Hanging out on my office wall, so it's my product possession, signed by Barry. Oh, wow. uh, so this is called uh, Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of hummus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to Carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman dissatisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields, lie down in the shade, rest your head in her lap, swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the fa false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like a fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Jack, what do you have for us? Uh, I have the poem that uh, is on page 88 at the end of part one. Let us enlighten then our earthly burdens by going back to school, this time in gardens that burn no hotter than the summer day. By birth and growth, ripeness, death and decay, by goods that bind us to all living things, life of our life, the garden lives and sings. The wheel of life, delight, the fact of wonder, contemporary light, work, sweat, and hunger, 
bring food to table, food to cellar shelves. A creature of the surface, like ourselves, the garden lives by the immortal wheel that turns in place year after year to heal it whole. Unlike our economic pyre that draws from ancient rock a fossil fire, an anti-life of radiance and fume that burns as power and remains as doom, the garden delves no deeper than its roots and lifts no higher than its leaves and fruits. Well, uh, thank you to you both for joining me here on the show. I, I enjoyed this conversation. We could have um, talked for many hours about this, about Barry and about the ideas that are in your book. Um, where would you? Where is the best place for people to to find Wendell Berry and higher education? From the publisher, from Amazon, you have a preference. Um, I hate Amazon, but probably <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I typically, I typically go out and like to give people the option, you know, because you know Amazon oh. likes to take everyone's money from them and pretend they're doing something good for them. Right, that's right. That's right. Um, but uh, again, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jack and Jeffrey, for your time. And uh, best wishes with the uh, continued life of this book and um, with all your teaching and writing. And I uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 